Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. Then I saw on the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Praise be to God. Thank you, Terry. Um, before we go on now for real this time, if you couldn't tell, I'm a little scatterbrained this morning. I did not sleep well last night at all, and I'm having a really hard time focusing this morning. So I'm going to ask that we take a moment and just pray because I want to do respect to the Word of God. Um, and so I'm going to ask for you to pray for me, for my focus, uh, and for us this morning to be in a place to receive what God has to say. So would you join me in prayer? God, thank you for calling us together here. And thank you that you work not only in spite of our weaknesses, but God, so often through our very weaknesses. And Lord, I'm feeling weak this morning. I'm feeling out of focus and, and off, um, God. And, and so for those who are here who are feeling the same way, I pray for a spirit of focus. I pray for discernment. I pray that their hearts and their minds and everything that they are would be inclined toward you. And I pray the same for myself today, that everything that I am this morning would be inclined toward you. Holy Spirit, would you speak through me? Holy Spirit, would you speak to the hearts of the people here present in the building and, Lord, with us online? And just be here in a way that we, we know your presence. We know that you're with us, God. Lord, direct my words. And, Lord, soften our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. Lord, be strong in our weakness today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for joining me in that. Now, uh, we're going to be in uh, uh, Revelation chapter 5 today. And we're going to go through all of chapter 5. Um, that was a long passage to read all of, so Terry got us through the first uh, verses, but, um, but they're kind of the most impactful verses. So we're going to unpack that today, but I actually want to start in a different place. I want to start in the letter to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians. Uh, here in, in the city of Corinth, there's major division in the church. There's all kinds of stuff happening. So you got all these like pagan Gentile people coming to follow Jesus and they're bringing all of their cultural baggage with them. They're bringing all of their practices with them and it's causing the church to be super divided. And, and there's, there's a lot of stuff happening in this church in Corinth that is really not healthy for the individuals or for the church family. And so Paul is writing, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church in order to soothe these differences and to bring unity within the church. And he starts off in a funny place. And if you read chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he starts by talking about the divisions that are there among the church because he wants the people to be aware of what he's addressing. Okay, you got these divisions among you. And then in verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul makes this kind of weird shift. 
And he says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believed through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. That's how Paul intends to deal with the divisions in the Corinthian church. Basically, Paul opens up his church, opens up his letter to this church in Corinth, and he says, Y'all are divided. Y'all can't get on the same page. You know what will fix that? The gospel's weird, man. And that's kind of how he intends to fix it. And that's, that's what he says. I mean, here in verses 18 to 24, if we were to summarize this, Paul is saying the gospel of Jesus is just weird. It's foolishness. Like anybody looking at this from outside the church should go, y'all are kind of crazy for believing this thing. Because Paul says what we preach is not wisdom. We don't preach the wisdom of the world. We don't preach works and signs. What we preach is Christ crucified. And that is bizarre. Look around at the world around you. Look around at the power structures of the world, of of your workplace, of your home. Look at the way the world is organized. Is there anything you see within the world that would lead you to believe that the way to be successful, the way to be powerful, the way to overcome all the difficulties and troubles in the world is to die? Is there anything out there that would say, yeah, you will be successful if you die? A successful leader is one who goes to a cross. There's nothing about the world that would say that's the road to success. There's nothing about the world that would say, yeah, you can become king of everything. All you have to do is be crucified. Nothing. That is foolishness. That's ridiculous. It doesn't work. You could not go to some international leadership convention, stand up and say, hey, the way to be really successful in your business, the way to be really successful in politics, the way to really run your country is to die for your people. It wouldn't work. Because that's not the power structure of the world. That's not how the world operates. And that's why Paul, at the beginning of the letter to these Corinthian Christians, can say, our gospel is weird. Our message is bizarre. It's foolishness. It doesn't jive with anything that you see in the world. It isn't wisdom according to the world's standards. It's not wise at all. But Paul says, we'll continue to preach this because it's the truth and it's the way that God has ordered the world. That the king of all things, the one who is truly master over the whole world, that's what Christ means The one who is really the king and calling the shots is our crucified Lord Jesus. And it is through his crucifixion and resurrection that he became the king of everything. 
And it's because of that, it's because of what Jesus has done for you, Corinthian Christians, that your divisions can be healed. It's through that death, it's through that suffering, it's through the crucifixion of your master that your divisions can be brought together and unified. Because that's the economy of God. That's the economy of mercy in which our God operates. And so, Paul starts his letter to Corinth by saying, look, the gospel is weird. It turns all of the structures of the world on on their head. And that's exactly what we see illustrated here in Revelation chapter 5. So we're really going to dive deep into the strangeness of God's power structure here in Revelation chapter 5. So last week, we entered into the throne room of God. So we've, we've been through the introduction to the Revelation in chapter 1, and then these letters that Jesus dictated to these seven churches in Asia Minor. We went through all of those. And at the end of those, then, the Apostle John, who is receiving this crazy grand vision of God, is taken into the throne room of God. And that's where we started last week. John goes up into the throne room of God and he sees this throne. And the throne is so bright and the power emanating from the throne is so much that he can't even tell who's sitting on it. He can just see this bright throne surrounded by light and peals of thunder and these, frankly, bizarro creatures, these these really strange heavenly beings surrounding the throne. But John just says, there's someone seated on the throne. I can't see it. And I liken this to looking directly into the sun. Like when you look directly into the sun, all you can get is the light from it. You can't see the sun. You don't see the fire. You don't see the explosions. You don't see those, the structure of the sun. All you can really see is the light of the sun. And if you look too long or too closely, the, the disc just turns black. And all you can see is the light around it. Because it's just so overpowering, you can't take it in. And that's what's happening with the throne of God, right? The person in the middle from whom all of this light and power is radiating can't even be perceived. So John says, look, there's someone sitting on the throne. And we read about these creatures and these elders, these angelic beings who are surrounding the throne, who are singing praises to the one on the throne over and over and over and declaring God's holiness and that God is almighty and God is worthy and that God is the creator of all things. And we said that when we gather for worship, when we gather as the corporate body of Christ, we are a pale imitation of what's happening in the throne room of God. That's why it's so important that we gather, because when we gather, we mirror heaven in worshiping our God and praising him just as these angelic beings are surrounding and praising God on the throne. And so now we come to chapter 5, and now some stuff's starting to happen. Okay, Chapter 4 is just setting the scene. Just, just showing us kind of the backdrop of what's going on. Now in chapter 5, things are really starting to move. Things are really starting to happen. And we see this person on the throne holding a scroll. And John says this scroll has writing on the inside and the outside. It's covered entirely. Now, in the ancient world, the way that paper was made, on one side of the paper, the, the fibers run horizontally. And then on the other side, the fibers run vertically. So typically, you'd only write on one side because it's hard to write against the vertical fibers of the, of the paper. So you only write on the back of the paper if you have to. 
if, if there's just so much you have to say that the front of the paper is not enough. And what John is saying now with, with this scroll that's written on the inside and the outside, he's saying all of the details are there. God has said so much that just the inside of the scroll wasn't enough. God had to keep writing. He had to keep adding. Now, this scroll is, is, a, is a puzzling thing. It's hard to tell exactly what it is if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament. But right at the end of the book of Daniel, right at the end of the, the book of the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel has been receiving words from God and receiving visions from God. And God tells Daniel, hey, put everything that you've seen and heard in a scroll and bind it up. And then this scroll will be opened at the end of all things, at the end of days, in the day of the Lord. And so a lot of scholars and a lot of people look at this and they go, this is that scroll from Daniel. This is that scroll that God said would be opened up at the end of all things that, that contains God's plan for history. God's plan for how things are going to go at the end of all things. And so this scroll is, if that's right, this scroll is God's purpose and God's plan for the world. Which I think explains why the Apostle John gets so worked up when no one can be found to open the scroll. This scroll is, is bound up and it's got these six, seven seals around it. Now when you Again, in the ancient world, when you had a scroll with, with information on it, a legal document, then the people who witnessed the formation of that document, they would seal in wax their seal around the outside of the scroll so that they could be witnesses to say, yes, I saw this happen, and so that if later you needed someone to come and attest that, yeah, this scroll is legit, this legal document is legitimate, you could go to these six or seven people and they would say, yes, I saw it written, we were there, these are the people involved, and yes, that is my seal. And you know if that seal's broken and the person whose, whose ring it was, the person who sealed it, says, I didn't do that, you know it's been tampered with. Right? So this is all like protective this is all meant to protect the contents of the scroll. And so when it tells us that there are these seven seals around it, but no one's available to open the scroll, what we, what we read is no one's got more authority than the witnesses who sealed the scroll. No one's got the authority to open this scroll. And so John gets super upset, right? They're looking around, they're trying to find somebody. Nobody in heaven or earth is, is found who has the authority to break these seals and open this scroll of God's plan for the future. And so John is just distraught. Now why? Why would John be so upset that this scroll can't be opened? And here's why. If this scroll is the scroll of God's plans and purposes for the world, then without this scroll being opened, as long as this scroll remains closed, there is no hope for the world. As long as this scroll of God's plans for the world, of, of our good and beautiful and righteous God, as long as this scroll remains closed, everything is hopeless. God's purposes won't come about. God's plans won't come about. The righteous and good history that God has planned will not happen if this scroll is not opened. And remember who John is writing to. 
He's writing to these churches in these, in these seven cities in Asia Minor. He's writing to the church universal to all of the Christians who at this point in history, they're this tiny little minority group. In some places, they're really persecuted and put down. John is writing Revelation. God is giving him this vision as an encouragement to these suffering Christians. And so John, as a sufferer himself, as one who's been exiled from his city, is looking at this and going, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold up, hold up. You mean if God's plans don't come about, if this scroll isn't open, our suffering will continue and it has no purpose. Right? If God's plans don't happen, then I'm suffering for no reason. We're, we're not believing in anything worthwhile if God's plans don't come about. And so he's upset. And rightly so. We should all be upset. And this is where we get to look at the Apostle John and we get to go, wait a minute. He is so into what God wants for the world. He is so concerned about God's purposes for the world that he is wrecked in his own soul when he finds out that God's purposes won't happen. And do you and I have that same intense desire for God's plans? Do you and I have that same intense emotion, intense desire for God's purposes to come about? That if we found out God's purposes were stifled, if we found out that for some reason God's plan wasn't going to come about, it would wreck us in our souls, it would tear us down? Would we fall on our faces weeping if we found out that God's purposes weren't going to be done? Or are we so secure in ourselves and our own plans that we could kind of make it without it? Who are you relying on? John here is so reliant on God because he has no other hope in the world. He's in exile, living in prison, struggling to make it, struggling to encourage these other believers to trust in their good God that when, God, when John finds out God's purposes might not come about, he is wrecked. I think so many of us are so comfortable in our homes and with our jobs and with our lives. I think so many of us are so comfortable in the lives that we have that we've lost the sense of desperation in God's plan. That if we found out God's plans weren't going to come about, it wouldn't really make that big a difference. My business would continue. My life would continue. I wouldn't lose my home. It wouldn't wreck me if I found out God's scroll couldn't be opened, if I found out God's plans weren't going to come about. I think so many of us, and I'm included, so many of us live day to day as practical atheists, not even thinking about God, not even thinking about what God's purposes and plans are, not submitting ourselves to him, not asking how he would have us go or what he would have us do, but instead just carrying on with our lives because really, it quite honestly doesn't matter if this gospel thing is true to us. It's not really going to impact my life. And I think here John serves as a reminder, John serves as an example for us of our true weakness, of our true reliance. We have nothing if we do not have God. We have nothing if we do not have Christ. We have nothing if we do not have his leadership. If God's plans will not come to pass. Our world is hopeless and we should give up now. And church, we have to recover our desperation for God's plan. We have to recover our desperation and our desire for his purposes. 
so that we, like John, can long for them deep within our souls, can desperately want what God wants, not what we want. That's what we see here when we see John on his knees crying and weeping. But then one of these elders, one of these 24 elders that surround the throne of God, one of these angelic beings taps John on the shoulder and says, there's hope, buddy. Just just hold on. It's okay. There's no need to be hopeless. There is hope. And this elder lets him know that there is one who can open the scroll. We know, we know that there's one who can open the scroll. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. He is the ultimate king of all things. He's the powerful one. He's the one who reigns supreme. He's the one who rules. And hope rises within John again. And he's expecting to see the great king of God's people walk into the midst of the throne to take this scroll and to open the seals. Now, imagine what's going on in John's head. Like, he's being built up here to to expect the glorious King Jesus, arrayed in all of his kingly accoutrements, arrayed in all of his kingly garb and robes and with his sword in his hand and ready to do battle with God's enemies. John is expecting the powerful King Jesus, the triumphant, the glorious King Jesus to show up here. And then as though in in some drama from TV, right, the camera pans and you're looking at John's face as he's hearing these words from this elder and hope is rising in him. And then the camera pans over and what do you see? You see a slaughtered lamb at the throne of Jesus, at the throne of God. Instead of the great glorious king, instead of the nine foot tall giant killing king, instead of the glorious, radiant, beautifully dressed king of all things, you see a lamb right at the throne of God, looking as though it had been killed. A bloody, slaughtered lamb is the lion of Judah, is the root of David, is the king of God's people. This is an image that we must hold in our minds for all the rest of Revelation because this is the essential character of Jesus Christ. This is the essential character of our God here on display. And it's an image that we must hold tightly onto as we move through because we cannot forget the character of our God as we read through the judgments and the things to come. We must solidly cement the character of God in our minds as we continue on through this book of Revelation. But there at the throne of God is a slaughtered lamb, utterly shocking to John, or to any of us looking upon this, expecting the glorious king, the king like David, the one who comes to make war and to reign. Instead, we see him there. But there's there's something weird about this lamb. You see, this lamb is is not just a, a slaughtered lamb. He's got seven horns, and he's got seven eyes. Now, we're not meant to picture this literally. These are symbolic images. And here's what these seven horns and seven eyes say about this slaughtered lamb. Though he is weak, 
He is endowed with all of the power and authority of God himself. Biblically, a horn is a representation of power. This goes right back to the book of Daniel, to the prophet Daniel and and the visions that he received. Horns are symbols of power. And when we see seven horns on this lamb, this is symbolic that this lamb, this slaughtered weak lamb, nevertheless has power and authority over everything. His power and authority is absolutely complete. He has the power and authority of God himself, though he is a weak and slaughtered lamb. And he has seven eyes, which we read are the seven spirits of God that that look throughout the earth. This imagery comes out of the book of Zechariah. And there we read about the, the seven lamps in the temple of God, which are the eyes of God that look out upon the world. And so what we see here in these seven horns and these seven eyes is that this lamb, though he is weak, though he is slaughtered, is nevertheless God himself. He possesses the seven spirits of God. He has the seven eyes that look upon everything, that miss nothing. He has the seven horns of complete rule and power and authority. Our God is one who rules in weakness. Our God is one who has come to us as Jesus Christ, crucified on our behalf, and yet in his crucifixion overturned all of the power structures of the world. Jesus is the one who comes to us and says, it is not through military might that I rule the world. It is not by bearing the sword and slaughtering my enemies that I rule. It is by being slaughtered by them that I overcome the powers of the world. I mean, this is, this is a total 180 from everything that we know. It's a total 180 from everything that we expect. And it's a total 180 from everything John expects in the moment. But this is who our God is. The lamb who was slain. The one who rules in weakness and yet with all the power and authority of God. The one who demonstrates his love for us in dying for us when we are his enemies. This is the way our God conquers. By allowing the forces of evil and the powers of evil to exhaust themselves on him. And then we come to the last scene where the lamb has taken the scroll and he's prepared to open the seals of the scroll to unveil God's plans and purposes for the world. And he's holding it securely in his hand. And then all of those creatures and all of those elders that are surrounding the throne of God begin to sing praises. Now, if you're a good Jewish boy like John, you expect them to be singing the praises of the one on the throne. They should be singing the praises of the one seated on the throne. The lamb is his emissary. The lamb is his his, his appointed man. But the lamb is not the one sitting on the throne. A good Jewish boy looks at this and goes, okay, now, now, now they're going to start worshiping the one on the throne who gave the lamb the scroll. But instead, instead, something radical happens. We read that, all of the 24, or the four living creatures and the 24 elders, all those amazing angelic beings that surround the throne of God, begin to sing a new song. That is, this is not a song that is recorded in the Psalms in the Bible. This is not a song that exists in any hymnal or any hymn book. This is not a song that anyone has made up. This is a spontaneous act of worship on behalf of these creatures. They are so moved by the presence of the Lamb. They are so moved by the goodness of their God that they just begin to spontaneously sing to him. 
we're a Reformed church, so I don't expect many of you to know this, but um, in, uh, in, in the Pentecostal churches where I grew up, spontaneous worship is a big deal. You often move from, from the structured song that you're singing, but then as the leader begins to sense the Spirit of God and, and begins to move and, and feels God's presence, they, they just might begin singing something you've never heard before. But there's a structure to it, and there's a cadence to it, and eventually you can join in with this entirely spontaneous song. If you ever pick up uh, live albums from, from like older Pentecostal uh, worship leaders, they always have these spontaneous moments. And they might go on for two minutes, and they might go on for two hours. You just never know. But that, that's, that's how it rolls. And, and, and that's what I imagine is happening here. Like That's how I imagine this scene in the throne room of heaven, is that they have these songs that they sing. Right? We, we've we read in chapter 4 about these songs that the elders and the, and the creatures around the throne sing day and night always. But now because the Lamb is with them, because the Spirit of God is there with them in the midst of the throne, that they spontaneously begin singing this new song. And it's just, it's an overwhelming emotion. And it's an overwhelming sense of God's presence and goodness and rightness that they just begin to sing this new thing all together. Never sung before. Only now they're worshiping not the one on the throne, but the Lamb. They're worshiping not the Father who, from, from whom these waves of power and authority and from whom all this light is coming. They're instead worshiping the slaughtered Lamb. And they sing to him, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because... You were slaughtered, and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. I like to think that when when Jesus was crucified, hell just went crazy. When, When Jesus was crucified, the enemy, the devil, and all of his minions just leaped for joy. They went nuts because they knew they had won. When Jesus was crucified, I imagine all of the enemies of God jumped for joy because God had been defeated. And yet here, in this new song, those who surround God's throne say no. Hell had no right to be joyous when Jesus was crucified. The enemies of God had no right to celebrate the crucifixion of Jesus because it is the very crucifixion of Jesus that made you glorious. It's the very crucifixion of Jesus that set him in the place to rule and reign over the earth. It is the very crucifixion of Jesus that defeated the enemies of God once and for all. That's why these creatures can sing, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered. We look upon the crucifixion of Jesus. We look upon martyrdom and death as as a sign of weakness. We look upon giving our lives up as a sign of weakness and as a sign of the triumph of the enemies. But these glorious creatures around the throne of God are saying, no, no, it is the very death of Jesus that makes him worthy of honor and of praise and of power. And it wasn't just that he died. If he just died and that was it, there would be no point to it. But if Jesus was just some other dude who died, what would be the purpose? 
There were lots of other pretenders to be Messiah. There were lots of other fake Messiahs around the time of Jesus. None of them succeeded. No one made it. No one lasted beyond their lifetime. Jesus is the only one who we still remember and celebrate and honor today. If he was just a guy, he's just like all those other pretenders. But Jesus is so much more. And it wasn't just that he died, but it was that his death, his blood, purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign on the earth. The death of Jesus in defeating God's enemies and in shedding the righteous blood of Jesus to cover our sin and to make us pure and holy before God, created a people of God to rule and reign on the earth in his place, to be a kingdom and priests. This is the exact language that is used when the nation of Israel is formed back in Exodus chapter 19. God says to the people of Israel, you will be a kingdom and priests to my God. That is, you will be a light to the nations. You will mediate the presence of God to the people of the world. And now, through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, we find that a new people has been created from every tribe and tongue and language on the earth to be this kingdom and to be priests, to bear the presence of God with us Everywhere that we go, that's what the crucifixion of Jesus did. It created a new kingdom. It created a new people to be the presence of God on the earth, everywhere, always. It defeated the enemies of God. It is the crucifixion of Jesus that makes him honorable and worthy and glorious. Now, as if this weren't enough, right? already the four creatures around the throne are singing, the 24 elders are singing the praise of the Lamb. Now enter in a whole other host of beings. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. Now in Greek, there's not a number bigger than 10,000, not at this time. So if you want to say innumerable, you say 10,000. And if you want to say really innumerable, you say 10,000 times 10,000. So literally in Greek, this is 10,000 times 10,000. And what's trying to be communicated here, what John is trying to say is, there are so many angels, you couldn't possibly count them all. They're innumerable. They're filling up every possible space that there is in this heavenly court, and they are singing the praises of the Lamb. They're singing the praises of this slaughtered lamb. And here's what they're singing. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. So John says, look, all of these angels, innumerable angels show up to sing the praises of the Lamb. And just in case that wasn't enough for you, now absolutely everything on earth, under the earth, in the earth, outside the earth, around the earth, just everything you can possibly imagine is singing worship to the Lamb. Why? Because he's the king. Because he's the one who rules over everything. Because he is the rightful king of heaven and earth. 
He is the rightful one to rule over all of us. He is the only one worthy because he was slaughtered, because he was crucified, because by his blood he purchased a people to himself and dealt with their sin, because by his crucified body he defeated the enemies of God and the enemies of you and me. You want to be successful in life? You want to really know what it means to have true success? To really be everything that you can be? To live your best life? Follow the crucified lamb. Give yourself over to the slaughtered lamb, to Jesus, the one who gave his life for you. He's the only one worthy of your worship. He's the only one worthy of everything that you are. Not because you're nothing, but because you are more glorious than you can imagine, because you're better than you can imagine, because you are so much more than you think you are. Your life is not, the other things in the world are not good enough for you to give your life to. Everything less than God himself, everything less than Jesus, everything less than the God who gave his life for you, who was slaughtered for you, who rose again for you, who rules and reigns in goodness and glory over the earth, anything less than him is unworthy of your life. You are worth so much more than anything short of Jesus Christ himself. He's the only one worth giving your life to. He's the only one worthy to to order our steps and show us the way to go. He's the only one who loves us enough to know exactly how to lead us. And he's the only one worth trusting with absolutely everything that we have. He calls us to worship himself not because he's an egomaniac, We are called to worship Jesus, not because he needs our worship to feel better about himself, but because nothing else in the world is worthy of our worship. We're too great. We're too glorious. To be made in the image of God and to reflect God in the world means that our capacity for greatness, our capacity for glory, our capacity for goodness and holiness is so great that we dare not give ourselves to anything less than Jesus. We dare not give ourselves to any less purpose than God's very plan. We dare not give ourselves to any plan less than the scroll that the Lamb is holding on to. God's plans and purposes for the world. This is why it is so vital that we gather and worship. This is why it's so vital that we we can truly say, yes, your praise is ever on my lips it is never ceasing, never stopping. This is why we are, we are told to pray without ceasing, but to always be connected to our God because to give ourselves to anything else in the world is to give ourselves to something less worthy, less glorious, less good, something we're not even worthy of, something we're too good for. We're too good for the things of this world. And it's up to us not only to hold that for ourselves, to remember that for ourselves, but to remember that for everybody that we meet. To remember that for everybody we come into contact with. To remember that for the people who annoy us the most. To remember that for our enemies. When God looked at you in your sinful state, when God looked at you as his enemies, he said they're too good for that. They're worth more than that. 
They can be so much more than my enemies. And so he chose to overturn the power of the world and to be crucified on your behalf so that you could know your full potential in him. So you could really rise to the occasion of being one who reflects the image of God in this world. And that's why he calls us to look upon everybody out there. That's how he calls us to look upon everybody that we see. Not as, not as meager little worms, lowly worms, but as people who have not realized all of the glory that God made them for. As people who haven't yet realized all of the good that God calls them to. As people who haven't yet realized all that God has done for them and all that they were made for. When we begin to see people as glorious beings, as we, when we begin to see people as, as copies of God, as images of God, who have just fallen short of the glory for which they were made, then we're in a position to offer them compassion and love and to walk with them toward Christ, toward their full potential, toward everything that they can be. But it's only when we bow our knee before the Lamb of God, it's only when we give ourselves over to Jesus fully that we can realize all of that. It's only when we give ourselves to the only one worthy of all that I'm capable of that we can realize, we can realize who he's made us to be. And when we own that for ourselves, we can begin to own that for other people. And we can point them to the God who can make them whole. We can point them to the God who loves them enough to have died for them. We can point them to the God who wants to bring them into his family and to realize the fullness of who he created them to be. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.